Some of you may have seen a few years back the documentary that was done uh, called The Band of Brothers. It was a story of, um, of an airborne division, United States Airborne Division, and their involvement in World War II. D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, uh, other, other uh, battles that took place in the attempt to retake Europe. I didn't have the, I haven't had the opportunity to see it, but I've read some things about it. And it is a fascinating account put together from historical narratives, from uh, eyewitnesses, from people who were part of that story. And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful piece of, of putting you into the, the lives of these people who were a part of this effort as part of the Airborne Division. There is a scene in the documentary when uh, they have, uh, this, this Airborne Division has, has uh, parachuted down into an area behind enemy lines. And as uh, the person who has settled them and gotten them ready to go, he, he says to the, the commander of that group, listen, uh, I hate to leave you, but I've got other things I need to go and other places that I need to be. And I, I hate this because I'm pretty sure it looks like you're going to be surrounded. And the man who was head of that, that uh, paratrooper unit said to this man, he said, Lieutenant, he said, sir, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. That's what we do. And I've been thinking a lot about that. Because there is a sense in which as followers of Jesus, we have, we have I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, we, have, we are in enemy-occupied territory. And, and we, we live our lives, in a sense, in some ways surrounded by the evil one who has a level of influence and presence in this world. And, and we live knowing that. It's a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this broken world and in this difficult world. But I've also been thinking of what it's like if you reverse the roles. What if instead of God's followers being the people who are in a position of vulnerability, what, what does it look like? How are our lives different if we're in a place of, of authority? Of power, a level of control, a level of significant influence. Does that change how we operate in this world? I think I was particularly thinking about that in light of the story that we just read this morning. As Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, we have this scene that unfolds. After being uh, in the garden, And being arrested, the beginning of this section says that Jesus is, the people who arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. These people, the the high priest, the teachers of the law, the other priests, these are people who are the shepherds of God. The shepherds of God's people. These are the people that God put into place in these roles to shepherd his people, to take care of them, to tend them. In Ezekiel 34 that we read a few moments ago, in the the latter part of the passage we read, God describes, this is what the kind of, this is what shepherding looks like as I intended it. And he says, this is how I'm going to shepherd my people. 
search for them, find them, looking for my scattered flock. I'll rescue them, bring them back home, feed them, give them good pasture land. They'll lie down in pleasant places. They'll feed on the lush pastures of the hills. I will tend my sheep. That's what God intended for the the leaders of Israel to do. To be people who nurtured the sheep, who cared for the sheep, who fed the sheep, who took care of them, who went and found them when they ran off, gave them what they need, helped them to, to, to be the, the kind of sheep that follow God. That's their role. That's who they are. And there's a certain part of me that thinks Jesus might have thought, should have thought, they're taking me to Caiaphas. They're taking me to the high priest. They're taking me to the people who are God's shepherds. That's the best place in the world they could take me. I'm going to the people whom God has designated as his representatives. What better place could the Son of God be? And it makes me think, it makes me wonder if people see the church that way. If people think about God's people and say, that's the safest place a person could be. That's a place where I can be honest. That's a place where I can, I can, be, uh, I can, I can find out things. That's a place where I can wrestle with things. It's a safe place where I can be fed and nurtured and, and led to God. That's God's intent. Unfortunately, we know from the whole gospel story, and we certainly see it in this story, that these are shepherds who have who've given up their calling from God. And instead of tending the sheep, they manipulate the sheep and they take advantage of the sheep. And instead of feeding the sheep, they feed off the sheep. And they have become, uh, they have become uh, pariahs of the sheep. They are what Ezekiel describes in the early part of that 34th chapter. They feed themselves instead of flocks. They drink milk and wear the wool and butcher the best animals and let the flocks starve. They haven't taken care of the weak or tended the sick or bound up the injured. They're not gone looking for those who've wandered away. They've ruled them with harshness and cruelty. They've wandered. No one has gone to search them. You abandoned my flock and left them to be attacked. You didn't search for my sheep when they were lost. You took care of yourselves and you left the sheep to starve. And that is a perfect example of what Jesus finds in Caiaphas' home. These are people who should be living their lives in self-giving, and instead, it's in self-interest. Instead of representing Yahweh to the people of Israel, they skew the true view of Yahweh. They challenge people to even want to care about Yahweh. And you have to wonder, how do you get to that place? How do you get to the place when, you're, when you are being called to be the, the godly shepherds of Yahweh, when you're called to, to serve the people and care for the people and represent God to the people, to get to the place where this scene unfolds, where the high priest is looking for people who will perjure themselves so that, for the sole reason, they can murder the Son of God. You know, it's one thing in a courtroom, if a witness steps up and, and lies, 
in order to convict someone they don't like. It's a whole other thing when the prosecution designs it that way. And that's what's happening. And you get to the end of this scene. And the priests, these representatives of God, the shepherds of God. Affirm the action against Jesus. To spit on him. To beat him. To play these, these twisted games with him. And they have no problem with it. How do you get to that place? It seems to me that, that their lives are, are wrapped up in, in a spirit of fear. When you read through the Gospels, and you, you see it here as well, they are people that are controlled by fear. In verse 5 of Matthew 26, they're beginning to plot against Jesus seriously now. And they say, listen, we want to arrest him. We want to, we want to get his life. But let's not do it during the festival because the people may riot. And that would be disastrous. We're afraid of what the people might do. And you see that various times. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid the people are going to take from them what they've accumulated. What they've amassed. It's wealth, yes, but it's power, it's influence. They built their whole lives, their whole existence is built on getting what they can. Taking from the people around them. Gaining power, gaining influence. Their whole lives are built around that. And for them to acknowledge that Jesus, hear the words of Jesus, the reason they want to silence him is because Jesus keeps telling them, that's not the way of God. Jesus says you need to give that away. You need to be a servant. You need to love people. You need to give to people, not try to get from people. It's a completely different mindset. And they don't want to give up their power. And the only thing they know to do is to silence it. To silence the one who's speaking against it. Because they're operating out of a spirit of fear that they may lose what they've gained. It's a temptation that all of us live with. When you stop and think about it, how many times decisions we make are driven by being afraid of losing something we want to hang on to. And we do that because we think that hanging on to this is better than letting it go to get closer to God. And you, if we're honest with ourselves, we see how skewed that thinking is. But we all wrestle with it. I do, you do. It's, it's, it's part of the struggle of our sinful human nature. But I don't think that's the only fear. I think they're also, they're also being driven by a fear of being wrong. Because I think they see things as a zero-sum game. If, I, if you're right, I'm wrong. I can't be wrong. I don't know of anybody who who lives their life saying, I hope I'm wrong again today. I, I, I enter into a discussion, enter into, a, enter into a, a, a disagreement with someone, say, boy, I hope I end up being wrong about this. You know, sometimes we say that. We say, I hope I'm wrong, but, and we really mean, I know I'm right. <laughs> yeah, right? 
Nobody wants to be wrong. And we all go out of our way to try to prove to people how right we are. We want people to know we're right. And we'll take all kinds of ways to help people see that. Because it's important to us to be right. There's something about our self-worth that's wrapped up in being right. And there's not, in essence, it's not wrong in and of itself to want to be right. But the issue comes when we see our opponents, we see people who have a different perspective than us, we see people who see things differently than we do, think differently than we do, when we see them as the opposition instead of people who think differently than us, then we're starting to move away from the perspective that's going to be that's going to be positive for us to a perspective that's negative for us. Because if our focus is, I'm right, that will quickly become, I've arrived. No discussion, no argument. I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to hear what you have to say. Because I, I'm convinced if you're right, then that means I'm wrong and I can't be wrong. Because everything in my life is built on be, me being Right? And all throughout his ministry, Jesus keeps saying to them, you have the wrong perspective and they can't take it because they they believe that their perspective of how you to interpret the scriptures is the only way to see it. And it's so ingrained in them, they will go to the wall fighting anyone in any way possible, even committing perjury and murder to keep that intact. But the truth is, none of us have arrived. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians and says, I've made a lot of progress, but I haven't gotten there yet. I'm on the journey. It's that mindset of humility that there's always more for us to learn. There's always more for us to grasp. That that other people don't have to be the enemy. They can be people through whom God might speak into our lives and into our perspectives that need to be fixed or changed or made new. God doesn't just say, hang on to what you've always known. He also says, embrace the fact that I am a God who makes things new. There's always a wider perspective. There's always something deeper. There's always something more that God wants to speak into our lives. And the question is, will we be humble enough to receive it? And that's hard. It's hard to to be humble enough to listen to people, to truly listen to them. And I'm convinced that one of the the great temptations that, that comes to us who are followers of Jesus is to we start out saying I'm wrong and Jesus is right and I need Jesus to help me. I mean, that's in a sense, that's part of what repentance is about. Admitting I need Jesus because I'm not right. And we're willing to start that way, but often our thinking gets so ingrained that as we go along, we become people who don't want to go through that again. I don't want to have to think about that. If I, if I really embrace that truth, if I embrace that that's different than mine, then that means I have to change something in me. And I have to humble myself. And I might have to admit that I don't have the corner on the truth. And I don't want to do that. And it's as, 
And I think what the religious people are wrestling with is that they believe they have figured God out completely. And when you believe you've figured out God completely, there's no more to learn, there's nothing more to do, there's nowhere to go, then it's very easy to become arrogant. And when we become arrogant, we start looking at people not as folks who God, through whom God might teach us, but as people to conquer. And when that happens, we often dehumanize people. And we see them as the enemy to crush instead of people through whom God might have a word for us. Hear me, I'm not saying that, that, this is, that we ought to embrace relativism, that there is no truth. I'm saying there is truth. And the truth is primarily Jesus. And the truth of following Jesus is we always need to have a spirit of humility through which God can continue to teach us and draw us closer and closer to himself. And sometimes we think if we embrace this mindset of humility and and a willingness for God to speak into our hearts that we're abandoning the truth. Not at all. We want the deepest truth we we can access of who God is and what God wants to do in our lives. Because there is never a place for dehumanizing people as a part of being, as a part of proclaiming the gospel. There's not a place of cruelty and, and, and unkindness and, and these kinds of deceptive practices that we can easily slide into if we believe we've arrived. I think it's important for us to remember that, that God creates every human in his image. Every human being is created in the image of God. Now, we tend to to say, sure, we know that. But we need to embrace that truth because it causes us to see people differently. I remember an Old Testament professor in seminary telling us that the, the biblical creation story is very different from all the other creation stories in the ancient Near East. In the biblical creation story, it begins, God created human beings in a generic sense. But you look at the other creation stories and they typically begin, God created an Assyrian. God created a Babylonian. God created an Egyptian. God created a Sumerian. And the essence of that is God created us first. And then all the other people came along and that means we're better than everybody else. And if we're better than everyone else, then how we treat them is not all that significant. But the biblical creation account says everyone is created in the image of God. And sometimes I think I worry that uh, sometimes our mindset is in the beginning God created Christians. And then everybody else. And I think we have to be on guard for that kind of thinking. And again, it's not abandoning the truth. Not for a moment It's embracing the truth. It's embracing the way in which we communicate the truth and live out the truth in a spirit of humility and grace that we see in Jesus. It's fascinating to me that that Jesus stands there and takes it. 
The gospel writer Matthew says, after all this abuse, he just is silent. And it really bugs Caiaphas. You know, aren't you going to say anything? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Aren't you going to? And Pilate gets bugged by that too. We find out later. Nobody does that. Everyone has to defend themselves. And Jesus says, I don't need to defend myself because I know the truth. I can be full of grace because I'm committed to the truth. I can be merciful because I'm committed to the truth. I know who I am. And we can can be committed to the truth. And we can be merciful and gracious because we know who Jesus is. And what's fascinating to me is that when Jesus finally does speak, Caiaphas says, look, all right, one last time. In the name of the living God, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, you said it. I didn't say it. You said it. And he says, and, and in the future, you'll see the proof of that. It's at the moment that Jesus finally speaks and he declares the truth that the hammer comes. It's at that moment in, the, in hearing the truth that, that the final blow to the cross is hit. And I think that we're, we're, we need to understand that, it, that our commitment to the truth is probably going to mean serious opposition. And we should expect that. Because the evil one's at work in the world and he's going to always oppose the truth because he's the father of lies. But that doesn't keep us from speaking the truth. But what we have to keep in mind is we, we, we are opposed because we speak the truth, not because we're being uncivil about it. Not because we're being unkind about it. Not because we're being, we're being antagonistic about it. But because it's the truth. Martin Marty said that, he said, I find that people who have a great commitment to, uh, to, their, to great convictions tend to struggle with, with civility. And people who are deeply committed to civility tend to struggle with keeping their convictions. And I think that's probably true. And we tend to say one or the other is right or wrong when the truth is they're both right and we're called to live in the tension of the truth of both of them. We have deep convictions and we're deeply committed to civility and mercy and grace and love. And we can do that even though it may mean that we get trampled. We can do that even though it may mean that, that we face a hard road because we know how the story ends. The way of the cross is the way of life because three days later, there is an empty tomb. And we know that we are following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when you know that, you can live differently. So we come to this table this morning. And at this table, we come face to face with the reality of the gospel and the kingdom and Jesus. That Jesus gives his life, sheds his blood for the sins of the world. He is the redeemer. 
And that starts with you and me. We come to this table not because we're privileged, not because we're worthy. We come to this table because God is gracious and merciful. And because we have opened our hearts to that grace and mercy. And the God who is gracious and merciful to us calls us to be agents of grace and mercy to others. We're going to take just a few moments of silence. Time for meditation. During this time, if you want to come kneel at the altar rail, you're welcome to do that. If you want to kneel in your seat or sit there. One of the things we may want to ponder is when we think about maybe a particular group of people, maybe a person, maybe just an ideology that we wrestle with. Our attitude, our actions, our perspective. If we're honest, do they look more like Jesus or more like Caiaphas? Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers and for speaking into our lives. Help our hearts, our minds, our spirits to be open to you. We pray, Father, not only for ourselves, but for each other and our world. Comfort all who are grieving today. Bring healing to all who are struggling with health concerns. Phyllis Osgood, Debbie Alderman Wilson, the Marsh family, John Retz, Emily Hood, Bob Brown, Bill Getty, Nancy Cole, Rosalind Danner, Eileen Spear, Evelyn Heil, for Dan Gurley, Cheryl O'Brien, for Gwen Mercer, Gus and Louise Purcell, for Bethy Liddick, Bev Retz, Phil Maine, Emily Cricklar, Mike Raybuck, Sheldon Emerson, Isla Shea, Isabella Doherty, Peter Lingenfelter, others on our minds and hearts today. We pray, Father, that you will help those who are struggling, recovering from disasters and tragedies. You will give safety to refugees around the world, that you will bring peace in places of war. You will help the leaders of our government at all of its various levels. We pray not only for uh, our own burdens and concerns, but also for churches around us. We pray for the Wellsville Salvation Army, Pastor David Means. May your blessing be upon them as they serve you, their community. Thank you for what you're doing in the world. Thank you for the opportunity that the Caribbean Global Partner missionaries have for coming to 
Florida for some rest and renewal and strategizing. And as they think particularly about Haiti, where so much has turmoil and difficulty and evacuations, may you bring peace to this land and that the church will be a beacon of hope and light. And for our brothers and sisters in Central America, we thank you for the the rise of more and more people coming to you and knowing you. And we ask that that would bring uh, bring a, a presence of peace and justice and the ongoing gospel of your freedom in Christ. Father, we thank you for this table around which we gather today. We pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup that as we eat and drink, we will know the presence of the living Christ in us and with us and shining through us. We ask this through his name. Amen.